Welcome to our After the Bell podcast, brought to you by Thirsty Scholars Partnership. Our podcast is here to help teachers and tutors. We will be discussing the latest issues in education and sharing top tips for use in the classroom, both face-to-face or virtually. If you work in education and looking to improve or develop your skills, then this podcast is here to help you. Welcome everyone today to this series of After the Bell podcasts brought to you by Thirsty Scholars Partnership. And hopefully you recall that we've been focusing in on Rose and Shine's principles of instruction. And today I'm joined by Helen Morgan, Andy Bridge and Lorna Bradford, our Head of Quality Assurance and Impacts. And we return to focus on the last step, step 10 of Rose and Shine's principles of instruction, which is weekly and monthly review. The main purpose of the weekly and monthly review is to ensure that previous learned material is not forgotten. And in previous episodes, we've focused on all the other steps of the principles. So we're also going to give you a recap so that you also uh, don't forget what we covered in Rose and Shine's principles of instruction. So I'm going to hand over very quickly to Helen Morgan, who's going to give us a full recap in the top 10 of Rose and Shine's principles of instruction. Over to you, Helen. Hi Georgie, hi everybody, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm going to give away my age at this point because um, I'm kind of reminiscing about top of the pops um, as I read this top 10, but just a quick rundown. Um, we started with number one, which was daily review. Then we moved on to presenting new material using small steps. Um, from there, we went to number three, which was asking questions. Number four, providing models. Number five, guiding student practice. Number six was checking for student understanding. And then more recently, we've looked at number seven, obtaining a high success rate. Um, Eight, providing scaffolds for difficult tasks. Number nine, um, last week was independent practice. And as you said today, Georgie, we're going to talk about weekly and monthly review. Beautiful top 10 there, Helen. Beautiful. And Andy, how how does that, that link to the various strands of the principles of instruction? Hi, George. Um, yeah, so for me, this it kind of ties us together. It's linked very closely to the other strands. Um, and really, in terms of it's just underpinned by that cognitive science that we've said is threaded right through um, these principles in that we know that when we um, encounter information once, it, it, we quickly forget it. Um, actually, it's the exact same principle of why Helen's just done that recap um, that people will have listened to the podcast once, engaged with it at the time. But then as soon as you've finished that listening, it quickly leaves your working memory. So the purpose of that recap is just to help it move from the short term memory to the working memory into the long-term memory um, and being really systematic with not just recapping what you've done the previous day, but recapping things from um, longer ago, whether that's a week, a month, a term, uh, a year ago, and being really systematic with how we do that. So that's kind of how it links to the other principles. um, And as we said, very, very strongly uh, underpinned by what we know about the science of learning, cognitive science. Brilliant. Thank you, Andy. So Rosenshine does tell us that it's important for students to um, almost undergo a form of cognitive apprenticeship that they learn the cognitive strategies and models. And that also links back to our previous podcast where Lorna and Helen were able to join us and we discussed the independent practice um, and linking that through to coaching and supporting so that students develop a level of independence um, and encourage our students to think for themselves. And this sort of monthly and weekly review 
also embeds embeds that practice further. So just handing over now, um, Lorna, how would that link back then to, uh, we were having a discussion before we started recording around sort of the daily review, uh, which I know that you actually uh, embedded quite regularly. Thanks, Georgie. Morning, everybody. Um, absolutely. There's a really strong correlation here between step 10 of Rosenshine's principles and step one, actually. So it's closing the full circle here. Um, in step one, we discussed how reviewing um, learning briefly at the start of every lesson is essential for students to make progress over time. Um, and I think that that is not only theoretically a really sensible approach, but also in action, it can start a lesson really successfully because it's bringing back material that is already familiar to students. So straight away, they've got a hook, they've got something they know that they're talking about, they can impress their teacher, they're in their comfort zone. And that's before you can then start introducing new topics, um, new skills, new new um, knowledge. When I was teaching um, a GCSE geography class, actually, um, I designed um, a sequence of homework and starter tasks that were um, mapped really carefully over a long period of time. And in every lesson, I would always set a homework of six short questions based on previously learnt material that would then form the starter of the next lesson, which is pretty much exactly what step one of Rosenshine's principles tells us to do. And that was a really effective use of time for me because it made sure that my students were, first of all, doing their homework and that homework was a benefit to them because if they didn't know that um, iterative content immediately, it was on them to go and find it out and resurface that information in their memory. Um, it allowed me then to do some really highly effective peer or self-assessment quite quickly, identifying gaps in learning so I knew where to move things forward to as we were going on in that lesson or over a period of time. And then it also re-established with students um, that the need for them to be regularly dipping into their long-term memory uh, for them to be successful over time. And I found that to be a really valuable um, technique. And of course, as we're talking more today about reviewing weekly or monthly, there is an opportunity there to expand the depths um, which you're exploring with students at each of those um, different review points. Thank you so much, Lorna, for sharing that. And actually, there's lots of sort of uh, links um, around sort of independent practice as well as we covered. So sort of, Andy, you're actually sitting there um, working currently in, in a role as a, a deputy head of school. How would that actually play out within your environment currently? So for me, I think um, it, this works really well where it's embedded as a routine and the staff members have a real um, clarity of what that's going to look like in their lessons and the students know exactly what to expect. And there is a balance. You, you want it to be an established routine. So maybe at the start of every lesson or um, some kind of consistency between classrooms so students know exactly what to expect, but also staff to have the autonomy and the skill set to vary what that looks like. You don't want to switch students off at the start of every lesson by boring them with something um, that just becomes repetitive for the sake of repetition. So we want the consistency of it always happening, but the autonomy and the variety of strategy to get that um, repetition. I think just to come in there as well, you know, it's really interesting, isn't it? Kind of this reviewing material and and thinking about how we bring it into the, the long-term memory so that students develop that fluency and automaticity of, of recall. 
of that information. And, you know, I'm listening to, to both of you and and smiling because um, I don't remember a huge amount about being at school because I'm, I'm 48 now. But um, there are certain things that I do remember um, and particularly kind of I love languages when I was at school. I did Latin, French, German. And we did loads of work on um, remembering verbs and recalling verbs. And we did that really regularly. And I'd say, you know, it, it's 30 odd years since I did those verbs at school, but I can still remember them because we did that frequent either daily recall, but then the monthly and weekly recall of them. And that whole thing about building that roadmap of knowledge for students over time. So we build that schema. Um, When we get the connections right for them, um, and we build that network of connections with their knowledge where they can, you know, make those connections. They can recall things really quickly or re- reroute themselves as learners. Um, it has huge value, not just in the lesson that you're teaching, but across lessons and beyond lessons. And I think it's important to not just look at this as a, you know, an approach to learning for now. It's also an approach to learning that's going to benefit young people in the, the long term as well when they move beyond school. Definitely. Definitely. I'd really grown. And, you know, like you were saying there, this is nothing new. This has been happening in schools forever. Um, It maybe just had different names like rote learning before. But maybe the thing that we're trying to do slightly differently now is be a bit more explicit with the students about the reason that we're doing it and the strategies that we're using. So certainly in my context, we're doing some work with the students on Ebbing Cow's forgetting curve, on long term memory, on the power of retrieval practice. And as you said, that then upskills them to take that strategy and implement it themselves in revision or, um, you know, in a post 16 or university setting, teaching them the process of learning as well as just delivering the strategies to them. So actually educating the students on the actual strategy that you're using with them so that they actually can then take that away and apply that elsewhere. Is that what you're suggesting there, Andy? Yeah, definitely. And I just think it's something in my experience we haven't done enough of. And we just kind of accept that the teacher knows those strategies and the student should do as we say, but actually empowering them to understand the methods that we're using, I think can be really powerful. Thank you. Thank you for that. Helen? Yeah, I'm just listening to Andy there and I think kind of again you know there's there's so much overlap isn't there when we think about kind of pedagogy and, and practice because that that process of students understanding the process of learning is really metacognitive and what we want is not just students learning lots of knowledge and being able to connect that knowledge but we also want them to be really knowledgeable about themselves as learners and when we kind of bring the strategy to the forefront of, of why we're doing something, then as well as building that roadmap of knowledge so they've got more prior knowledge to draw on and apply in different contexts and situations, we're really kind of building their knowledge of themselves as learners and how, you know, how they learn best. And I think one of the things that perhaps, you know, we go back 20, 30 years, um, I've been teaching 20, 20 odd years now that we we didn't do as much of kind of, you know, maybe in the, in the 90s was really focusing on that process of learning and, and helping students to understand themselves as learners. And I think when you connect the two things together, um, what we're seeing now with with kind of what we know about how students learn, it's really, really powerful. It's really powerful and students really like it as well. Lorna, I think you, you've got some points here. Yeah, I, I just had a, a memory come to mind there of uh, many years ago, a student in probably year 10 saying to me, Miss, you just know so much 
and about geography, of course. And I was thinking, well, yeah, I should do. That's my subject. That's what I have to teach you. And it just dawned on me. I remember having this really clear moment of, wow, this is why this is important. Because that student needed to know everything that I knew. And they also needed to know that amount of information from probably 10 other subjects. And the assumption was that they could hold on to this information from 10 subjects for two or three years to then be able to apply it to examinations at the end and be successful. And I think there is a risk of some real naivety of teachers who think that I've taught it once, you've got it, move on. And that is so unfair on young people. And I think that's why this principle is so important because the content load that is expected to be committed to long-term memory of students is enormous. And we need to have that regular recall um, of information like Helen was talking about her experience of verbs in languages at school. You need to come back to these um, topics regularly to have a a fighting chance of being able to, to remember it all. We are not Um, unlimited sponges, especially young people. And those lower prior attainers and middle prior attainers who perhaps um, have uh, challenges before we even start thinking about that, that load of information will struggle to process this information unless we do the regular reviews, be it weekly, monthly, or even um, principle one, lesson by lesson, day by day. Um, Yeah, that really just triggered something with me there that Helen said that. And and that also links through really Really interestingly to Rosenshine, he, he, with this principle, he, he talks about keeping it generative. And we were discussing this earlier, Helen, around that the, the students need to explore their memory to check what they know and understand um, and, and removing those scaffolds and, and those kind of sort of different elements so that you make them close their books and you get them to think about it independently again, as in principle and step nine. So you start to build up a picture of how Rosenshine's different principles principles are applicable to each other and how they they work and they blend together. Andy, would you like to expand on that? Yeah, no, I just thought that was a really interesting point. Like you said, that that generative approach. And as Lorna was talking about then, the cognitive load on students, that's maybe easy for us to forget because like Lorna was saying, she's a geography teacher. She's immersed in geography all day, myself and Helen in English all day. But the students are moving around between 10, 12 different subjects with very specific um, domain knowledge. They need to be able to quickly switch um, you know, the schema that they're using and the knowledge base that they're working through. So any strategies that we can give them to help support that and help embed that knowledge in the long-term memory to free up the working memory for the next lesson, um, I just think so important. And uh, Helen was saying, you know, this, it was she was doing this in the 90s. I think one thing that's maybe slightly changed since then, um, which is a really good thing, is maybe teachers become a little bit more research um, engaged, research aware now. So, um, you know, learning to learn, as you said, it, it was big when I was at school, but there was maybe some questionable evidence bases with learning styles and preferred learning styles, that kind of thing. Whereas I think now um, increasingly teachers are a little bit more confident to challenge research and really um, be critical with what they're reading rather than just accepting the research, which has got to be a good step. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, that that, that criticality is key, isn't it, um, with, with the research? And I think, you know, when we, we start to think about this idea of um, building this big roadmap of, of knowledge with students, it's a, it's a really complex thing, isn't it? Like, how do we build that roadmap um, so that students haven't got 12 different roadmaps, a roadmap for each subject? 
but actually they build it into that one big roadmap. And I think, again, what we're seeing, um, and, you know, I was in Andy's school um, yesterday and I've been doing some work with them, but I think one of the things that's been really interesting is they're really fostering um, connections between subject leaders about when subjects teach particular things that might connect with something um, in a, a different subject. And and again, not just hoping that that happens by chance, but doing it deliberately and explicitly. And I think perhaps that's, again, if I look at one of the big shifts over time, I think teachers have always done retrieval practice, but have they always done it deliberately? Has it always been planned and systematic? I'm not sure. And, and those are the shifts, aren't they, that we're really beginning to see? Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely, Helen. I think I've got a, a prime example of that, if if I may. Um, I remember teaching geography in which there are um, a number of mathematical equations required. Um, and I was teaching them in the way that I had been taught them, in the way that I remembered. And I was using mathematical processes that are no longer taught in secondary schools as a new technique, a new way of doing it now and so it was really important for me to go to the maths department upskill very quickly on how I could teach what they were teaching so that students didn't have to learn two different methods why on earth would I do that you know that's just nonsensical Um, and so by having that open dialogue between middle leaders and, and subject specialists and finding those quick wins of where the content does overlap or skills overlap can be really beneficial for for the students I think yeah I t- I t- Totally agree with that, Lorna. And also, it's also beneficial for the the teachers as well. Over time, it it doesn't have to be a burden on the workload. When you're uh, learning a new strategy around reviewing, it's also really useful to know that some of your what you're learning or or you're teaching to your your, uh, students is actually also being picked up and reflected in in other subjects across across the the school. So, it's, it's that joined up approach again it's about a community and, and education so and the best methods uh, erosion and shine shares that don't involve teacher checking student answers and and creating an unstain, unsustainable workload it's more about che- checking occasional checks and and encouraging the, the student over time to actually be able to self-check and be much more self-aware so that wraps up some of our sort of weekly and successful uh, reviews and, and strategies I think we've touched on quite a few, but um, for me, I think what I've taken away from sort of exploring all of the the principles of instruction is that actually, it, it's not a checklist. It's not something that you have to you have to do. It's something you can dip in and try, um, and it's very obvious and um, and and it's common sense. A lot of it is common sense, but it actually it's a really good approach to actually apply. What what would you all uh, share with me around um, your your sort of perceptions of the 10 steps of Rosenstein's principles of instruction? Okay, um, I'll I'll go first. Um, I think, I mean, it's been really interesting, hasn't it, to work through all 10 principles together and do some, you know, to do some thinking and learning together um, about those and to do some reflection on them. 
And I think I would always go back to exactly what you said, which is their principles, um, but their principles that are underpinned by research. So we know that when they're done well, they're going to have a positive impact, um, but they're not rules and the principles that should guide practice. And, you know, linked to that, um, it's about, you know, knowing your students, it's about knowing your subject and then thinking about how you can use those principles to really help students to learn well. And I think going back to to Andy's point earlier, uh, we know that they work best when they're practiced deliberately by teachers, when there's a sense of, you know, being very intentional about what you do. And I think there may be things to hold on to um, when you're thinking about your own practice. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's what I was going to say, Helen. I think it's um, a great strategy to have an awareness of, but they don't necessarily just come naturally to us. Um, and where this works well is where you actually really think I'm going to deliberately embed this in my teaching today. I'm going to make a specific effort to focus on this strand and really work on embedding the daily review, the monthly review or the questioning strategies rather than just thinking, oh, yeah, I've read that book. I've got an awareness of it. I'll do that. We, we need to, to do the deliberate practice and, and wherever possible invite people in to give us feedback on that and help us um, do it even better. Absolutely and, and they also bridge the bridge research so it means that actually it's embedding you, teachers can trust the principles of instruction because they know that it's actually research-based um, and Rosenstein talks about the importance of, of trustworthiness and and that they're authentic there's there's lots of evidence around them to kind of um, reassure teachers that this is a really supportive sort of strategy and, and framework to work from. And for all these reasons, it's it's Rosenstein's principles are recognised that they're a really useful platform for teacher development and the teacher development process as well. Um, so I'd really encourage people to go back and review these and also listen to the, the recordings that we've done previously as well. Um, and we've been very fortunate to have the three of you join us to sort of share lots of experience Lorna, would you like to just wrap up on any of your sort of perceptions around around the principles? You know, an interesting way that I think they could be used in any form of educational setting is as a bit of a self-assessment tool, actually. Um, it'd be really interesting for a colleague to um, come to these principles um, with fresh eyes and have a look at which ones they think they are doing day in, day out and are part of their daily practice and identifying any that they think that they could maybe do more work on. Because chances are, by by um, paying a little bit more attention to one of those areas that could really take their practice to the next level. And they're so um, um, sensible, for want of a better word, um, and can lead to brilliant teaching and learning in the classroom that I think that it could be a useful opportunity to engage in CPD around some of these. And I think that the the work that's on the Thirsty Scholars Partnership website could really support with um, some of these areas. So um, a great self-assessment tool as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, Andy, what would your? I know we've got ten to choose from, but what would your uh, your favourite takeaway be from uh, from Rosenstein's principles instruction apart from MasterChef? Oh, God, Georgie, how can I pick one? They're so interlinked; it's really hard. I think. Um, okay. Ooh, I don't know. I'm so torn. I think I would maybe go for questioning. I think if you get your questioning right, it underpins a lot of. Um, it, it's good assessment for learning. It helps guide your future planning um, and your awareness of what your class can and can't do. Affect so I think I would go for the question in strategies. Absolutely. Thank you, Andy. I thought I'd put you on the spot first there. I'm Helen. changing my mind now thinking, oh, is it questioning? <laughs> I'll 
<laughs> Alan, what about yourself? Uh, that, I mean, it, Andy's right, which is that they're all interlinked and it's really hard to to kind of split them and separate them. But I think for, for me, kind of, if I think about some of the, the students that I've worked with, um, you know, um, some of the classes that I've taught over time, that the two that really kind of spring to mind for me are, are presenting new information in small steps. I think when we work with young people, um, working in that small step approach, you can really see the cumulative effect of that building over time for them to help them to be successful. I also think about checking, you know, checking understanding. And I do think um, perhaps early in my career, you know, I'd, I'd say things to students like, does everyone understand? And then I'd just carry on and assume that everyone had got it just because I'd covered it or taught it. Um, and that's clearly, you know, not the case. And Tom Sherrington makes the point, I think, really, really well, that by just shifting from saying, has everyone understood, to saying to a, a particular student, tell me what you've understood, you can get a much better handle on how well students are understanding, you know, what you're teaching them. And, and that would be another big takeaway for me. I think um, I made a lot of assumptions, and you know, when, when I was teaching. And if I was back in the classroom full time now, that would definitely be something I'd change. <laughs> yeah, it's a brilliant framework, isn't it? it absolutely. It, it kind of supports around those areas. And, and I think um, for me, it's the importance of um, preparing students. And I, I love the concept of actually educu- educating pupils to know what the process is that they're going through and how it's going to help them. It, it's so obvious, but actually it means that you do get their buy in and they're much more invested and they understand that they can then apply this in lots of different situations so it's building on that independent practice as well Lorna well mine's a little bit of a cop-out really because I think that the most important or my favorite is the um, provision of independent practice for students but that very much takes into account the fact that all of the previous principles have to have been done well Um, so when Helen was talking about chunking the information down into manageable parts and Andy was talking about really high quality and effective questioning they are all the precursors to then providing the opportunities for students to do um, independent practice Um, because ultimately as teachers that's our final outcome that's our aim for students to take the knowledge and skills that we're imparting onto them and allow them to go and apply it in their own way Um, and it's important that teachers are brave enough to um, allocate parts of lessons to that really quiet focused hard level work um, that students need to become accustomed to and it needs to be well planned into but as we talked about in the previous podcast around um, principle number nine there is so much preliminary work and, and groundwork work that needs to go into that for it to be successful um that i think that i may have been a little bit cheeky there because i do like that one but only if the other ones have done been done really really well absolutely can i have it can i have that yeah one? you can have it we'll let you have that one lorna yeah that that one that one's not going to work unless everyone's followed all of the other other framework pieces but yeah thank you i i yeah i also i'm i quite enjoy that one um and it's not a cop out i'll let you have that one absolutely Um, So thank you so much to Lorna, Helen and Andy for joining us today. And we're wrapping up the end of the year, really. So um, next week will be our final podcast for for After the Bell and the end of Series 1. And next week, we're going to be reflecting on our educational year of 2021. And honestly, what a year it's been. 
Um, I've got some notes down here, but it's been a year which has required teachers to be educators, supporters, mentors, counsellors, allies, not to mention IT experts, and ensuring that our educators also have to have a toolkit of flexible project management skills. So you need to be agile as well. Um, and we're going to delve a bit deeper on those reflections in our final podcast of the year. So our After the Bell podcasts are released on a weekly basis and provide quick tips and discussions with our experts around all things educational on our daily commute, on your treadmill or for your focus for the day. And alongside these, we also offer our Twilight Toolkit webinars and these are offered out free to the education community. So these are uh, suitable for teachers, leaders, tutors and teaching assistants. And that includes whether you're an early career teacher or you're looking for a refreshing approach for your teaching practice within your school. It's always a pleasure to have time to sit and chat with you all um, about the different concepts. And next year, we're going to be picking up some new strategies. We're going to be focusing in on some very key themes. We're going to be looking at well-being and education as well. So we've got lots of exciting things for Series 2 and whatever 2022 is going to throw at us. Um, But uh, I look forward to having our final review next week. Um, And thank you for listening to us today. Take care. Goodbye.